0: I think the buildings that people want are well-located, designed around tenant needs, with strong environmental credentials. And one of our friends in YPO in London is who taught me that sentence. Okay. Well-located buildings designed around tenant needs with strong environmental credentials. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort
1: Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business entrepreneurship and investing i would love to hear from you by tweeting me at fort worth chris on twitter and if you've enjoyed this show i would be super grateful if you would follow us on apple podcasts spotify or whatever platform you listen to and if on apple it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review last but not least you can find all these episodes on youtube thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show and this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. If you're anything like me, you're constantly reading. And if you're tired of sifting through dozens of online blogs and Twitter feeds to get the commercial real estate news you need, subscribe to the CRE daily newsletter. Think of this email like your smart, no bullshit friend, breaking down all the biggest stories, acquisitions, trends, and fundraisings of the day and compiling them into one digestible email that you'll actually enjoy reading this newsletter is now read by over sixty-five thousand real estate investors brokers developers and deal junkies the cre daily keeps you informed on the top national regional and property sector news that matters to your business without all the bs give it a try by subscribing free at credaily.com that's cre for anyone that tried buying a car over the last couple of years it was not an easy thing to do I just got a car uh, and had one of the best experiences I've ever had with Frank Kent Cadillac here in Fort Worth, Texas. When you think of Fort Worth businesses, it's hard to not think of Frank Kent Cadillac. Well that's because they've been around for 87 years and with history like that they know a thing or two about how to treat their clients. Like no dealer markups over MSRP. The price on the sticker is the price you pay. So when you're in the market for a new vehicle, check them out. New inventory is arriving daily from the XT4 5 and 6 to the CT4 and 5 Black wings with CPO rates. There is always something in store at fkcadillac.com. That's fkcadillac.com. Frank Kent Cadillac, community-driven, locally different since 1935. John, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. All right, I, I have to ask now. You're not, you're wearing this nice Michigan shirt. Did you go to Michigan or what's going on?
0: Didn't go to Michigan. My wife told me the one thing I had to do is wear a collared shirt. So I agreed to do that. I love Harbaugh and I love Michael Jordan. Okay. And so you got the, you know, the, this to me is Harbaugh, this is Michael Jordan. And what's funny about wearing a Michigan shirt is, you know, I've had my day today. I've had three or four meetings and I've talked about Michigan now eight times. And uh, five of those times with people I didn't even know. Yeah. So I told my daughter, who's a she was a freshman at Tufts last year in Boston, and she was having a difficult time making friends, as all freshmen do. And I told her, "Hey, if this continues, I'm going to send you a Michigan shirt and make you wear it because <laughs> people just want to talk to you about Michigan."
1: Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, all right, let's kind of just start off with um, kind of your story growing up and uh, like leading into Trammel Crow. Like, sure, l- I'd love to hear more about
0: it. Grew up in Dallas. Went to SMU. Loved my time at SMU. Graduated in '94. Went to work for Trammell Crow Company, and uh, I worked for an All-Star cast: Prior Blackwell, Chuck Anderson, Tom Leiser, Lee Bell, and the Mike McVean were my direct bosses. T.D. Briggs, Puss Pussmuller, Mike Lafitte—like I could go on forever. Oh my gosh! It was just—I was just real fortunate to be 23 years old working for that cast of of people who've gone on to do what they've done. I worked there for five years, and then I went to business school in California, at Berkeley. Okay.
1: All right. Trammel Crow is like this notorious machine for having pumped out some great real estate folks, yourself included, but the cast that you just went through, and there's many more. I mean, right. if you look around the country, a lot of our best real estate companies are old Trammel guys. Right. What is it about Trammel Crow that created a culture that created so many all-stars?
0: Man, I'm not certain. I mean, I've read the book, Crow Master Builder. I feel like he developed a great firm and really empowered people to go do things. And that was just a meaningful part of the culture yep. is that young people could come in and produce immediately and be promoted fast, grow to different cities. He just <laughs> built a great, a great business. He was also very likable. I got to meet him twice and he was just so charismatic and kind. Like a, You could see where people would want to help him be successful.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, what was it though? Like you hear about like tiger cubs. There's kind of like Trammel croak cubs or tiger cubs in the hedge fund world. Was there some type of something embedded in, in the culture that would say like, "Hey, future people are just going to keep going out of this place and creating great things." Like again, what you've done, what Streams done. I mean, it seems like people come out and create these great companies. Was there something about that that made people want to be entrepreneurial,
0: or did he just hire kind of entrepreneurs? I would suspect he hired people that had that tendency. Yeah. But I think also that when you're there, I remember when I left Stream to go start my business, Prior Blackwell wrote me a great letter and he said that you're on a well-worn path. And like, it was right. It's like, this wasn't something that's something lots of people do. And there's lots of examples to go follow. So I feel like just culturally, that's just the way it was set up what uh so you left trammel you went to stream what was that kind of stretch like so in between trammel and, and and stream i went to business school for two years in california so i went to berkeley okay i stayed in contact with lee and mike closely yeah they started stream we're doing great things and i interned for goldman sachs in manhattan and then decided that i liked real estate and construction cranes and buildings more than stock tickers and so came back to dallas Went to work for Stream, and we had probably 50 people, and it was just, it was a great place. It still is a great place, but like I had a really fun time working there for eight years and learned a lot and was great. and grateful for the opportunities I had there. And what did you do there? What side of the business were you on? I started off in project leasing and was the top producer for two years, and then they were real kind and put me into a leadership role running the project leasing group. Then I got to run the Dallas office, and then I got to open up offices in Atlanta, Orange County, and Houston. Yeah. So it was, it was fun. Okay. So 2009 comes, what was the kind of the tipping point
1: to spread your wings and move on to Altrueler and company? I
0: felt like things were really tough at that point. Okay. Like the market was bad and I decided that like the market's going to be bad, whether I'm at stream reality or on my own with whatever the firm's called. And just decided that I wanted to, I knew I'd, I'd always had a lifelong goal to do this and felt like I was only getting older. It was only gonna get more difficult. So really with no business plan or plan or anything, I just w- walked in and quit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, if you were watching like a running highlight film or running film for me for 18 months, there weren't, weren't a lot of highlights to call from as I got started, Yeah, we, we stayed at it and it worked out well.
1: Okay, I think this would just be interesting to talk about. You kind of rode the wave of real estate up and then you saw 2009 happen it market's getting interesting right now but can you just kind of speak to your recollection of how th- things change from call it the heights of 07 to 09 and like how quickly just emotions and things that you saw that i mean you saw this correction happen and that we went from the top of the world to the bottom of the world pretty quick what was all that like
0: so i remember reading in the wall street journal at one point that Bear Stearns had some investment vehicle that was $1.6 billion and they were marketing it down to zero. And I was just like, well, that was interesting. <laughs> and then about the same time, I remember Blackstone bidding up equity office properties. Or sorry, yeah, Blackstone, was that was a massive competition to buy that portfolio. And they were buying it and then piecing it off, selling it to different groups right at the very top uh, at the time we owned Chase Tower and we were trying to we were selling that in the market so we were watching groups bid on that and then watching that process close and this was all during like from summer of 8 to the end of 8 and it was just it was it seemed like a slow train wreck to me like looking back like it was you were getting Data points that things were bad. Yeah. But you are also seeing affirmations in the market that made you continue to think, hey, things are okay. Yeah. Like people are still bidding big prices, they're doing big deals. And by the start of 09, I feel like we really felt it just, it was just stopping. And I feel like in our business, like what we do, transacting, advising, brokerage, you can do really well when things are really good or when things are really bad, but you can't do hardly anything when things are just getting sideways, Yeah, when there's no transaction activity, which is what ended up happening in 2009. Yeah. And I kind of feel like that's a parallel to where we are today. We're moving sideways. It feels sideways.
1: Okay. What what can you, what what are you able to do at the bottom? What are you able to start doing at the bottom that you can't do when you're moving sideways? And, And maybe let's just take a step back
0: before we get there. What does Alt Shuler and company do? We transact real estate. So we okay. represent buyers, sellers, tenants, landlords, um, leasing space in the Metroplex, leasing space around the country, buying buildings, selling land. Like, so for instance, recently we leased the stack for, we leased the stack for Heinz and Deep Ellum. Mm. 200,000 foot tower, brand new, we leased that to three tenants. We're leasing for Westdale now, the Epic, which is where, next door to where Uber has a mm. big sublease. We're leasing the first tower, we're leasing a big project for Los, for Piedmont and Las Colinas called Corporate Center. We're helping someone sell 370 acres in Decatur. Okay, so we have a range of business activity that we work on.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So we'll get back to that. But going back to uh, 0709.
1: So 07, I think at the time you were doing mostly building leasing, right? right. Were you doing any tenant rep work, or it was our all firm built. did? But I was only doing te- uh, building leasing. Okay. Just to frame it, like, what is a, a what is the narrative from the owner of a building in 07 versus now what they're telling you to do in 09? So
0: in 07, everybody's a bull market genius. Okay. In 09, nobody can do their job. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And like, in between, you just do a bunch of practice work mm-hmm. as the leasing agent. Like, you keep showing space, you keep responding to space inquiries, you respond to RFPs, you send proposals, you do space plans. But like things don't advance from there yeah so like i've seen this several times in my career where we're still working we're just not getting paid and i call it practice work you're just getting reps in yeah you get reps for a while
1: okay so oh nine hits uh things have if we kind of know that that
0: things got bad then what are landlords asking you to do well what we did effectively then was we were able to counsel owners that the price cuts coming yeah like beat the price cut yeah, And so that's what I think you try to do as an, as an owner when things get bad, in office buildings at least, is lock in some income, like and, make some leases.
1: And at that time, the tenant rep message, though, is like the blend and extend message. Right. Like, what what are tenant rep brokers trying to tell tenants? And then what are leasing? Like, what is there a, is there a game being played amongst the, the two? You know what I mean? Like, you're trying to tell a building owner, we're going to keep this thing leased. The tenant rep brokers are like, okay, there's blood in the water. I remember being a tenant rep broker for a little bit. It was the blend and extend. Yeah. You're trying to convince tenants to go to your landlord and lower prices. But like as the the leasing agent, like how are you defending
0: against that? I think as a leasing agent, you're trying to represent strength whenever you can yeah. in the market. Yeah. Even if your client feels weak, it's your job to still portray some level of confidence and strength and positioning um, to the counterparty. Yeah. So I think a lot of it's just. I don't know. I feel like good leasing is is an art. Yeah, and you have to be real savvy, business intelligent. Like I think it's more than just figuring out, like, hey, where's the fair deal? I think there's a lot of trying to figure out. All right, well, what's the most that person's willing to pay? Yeah, how do I convince them and compel them to do that? Yeah, when you're on the landlord side, mm-hmm. Um, I think it's I watched some some people at the Crow Company and Stream in particular that were just great at. Realizing value for their side. Yep. We're going to jump
1: forward just a little bit. Uh COVID hits. A lot of the projects you just mentioned. We, we we can talk about land and other asset, but a lot of what you've done is in the office world. Right. That's a that's a hot word. Sure. Maybe let's start with kind of how you would uh describe the current market for office. And maybe segment it from just the pure where we are in the economy versus where we are versus just the world being receptive to office
0: right there's clearly two trends there's a trend of the economy not doing well which impacts office yep and there's the trend or new reality of how people want to use office space yep and so i think the market right now is fairly chaotic but the interesting thing about office buildings is that it takes a long time to digest anything because of the structure of long term leases. I mean things could be it could overnight change where no one wants their office space but office building owners can not experience the pain that comes from that for some, for some period of time. Yeah. Because they might have an anchor lease that goes through 2026 or they might have other variables that don't force you to it. it these aren't hotels. Yeah. They don't change overnight right. from a cash flow standpoint. So the benefit of that convention to the owners, as everyone's grappling with how to use their office space, at least you still have the recurring monthly rent payment and the chance that maybe things will turn around in your favor Yeah, from a utilization standpoint. But what I'm seeing is that the trend is becoming more clear that like certain kinds of buildings people don't want them. Yeah. I think the buildings that people want are well located designed around tenant needs with strong environmental credentials. And one of our friends in YPO in London is who taught me that sentence. Okay. Well-located buildings designed around tenant needs with strong environmental credentials. And so that's a building that we all know what a good location is. Um, Designed around tenant needs mean there's a coffee on site. There's a really nice gym. There's really nice conferencing facilities. There's places to hang out. There's places to do work. If designed around the tenants' needs. Strong environmental credentials means you walk out the door and you're engaged. Yep. You don't have to get in your car. You can go different directions and feel safe and go to the restaurant that direction, cool shopping the other direction. People need to be engaged from call at 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. in their work environment, is what we're seeing. Is the trend
1: coming back more that, hey, more companies are coming back into, like if for those type buildings, are there more tenants now looking there today than there were, say, a year ago?
0: Absolutely. I feel like it's almost the only part of the market where there's activity, meaningful okay. activity. The, the term our friend from London used to describe everything else, he said, those buildings are all stranded. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What about inside
1: the office? Like I think if you if we had done this in 2020 it was like you know we're going to have everything spaced out and nobody's going to like look at each other right. and we're all going to be behind glass walls. I think we've kind of moved past that part. Is it kind of getting back to like look an office this is how it was always kind of designed or has a new layout format you kind of mentioned tenant needs that was kind of I'm assuming common areas but let's talk
0: about like inside the office. I think inside the office there's not like a prevalent design that we're seeing but I have opinions on what the inside of the office needs to be. Yeah. I think it needs to be a clubhouse. Yeah. Like I think it needs to be the kind of thing that like compels people to come back. There needs to be a place to work obviously, but you got to have some cool stuff that people want to be part of. Yeah. Um this like that's real comfortable, it's interactive. I want to be able to have four-person meetings, eight-person meetings and like what some of my friends on the west coast pointed out that their technology firms they pointed out that like what's really missing in the co-working solution at the moment is like how do you have the 20 person meeting, the 40 person meeting, the 60 person meeting? Like offices need to be able to accommodate those as well. Oh. So, and I also think we all have to recognize that hybrid works for real. Like yeah. it's, uh, some portion of the workforce is going to want to work from home and can be productive from home and I think increasingly companies are accepting that's the case.
1: Okay, if, if I if we went through two scenarios, the, the big Uber sublease so Uber signs a big lease, they decide we can't really fill it. So what happens in the market when Uber puts up hundreds of thousands of feet? I mean, I know it's for lease. Uh, is there a reason why that space would lease slower than it had it never been leased to begin with? Like what what happens there? How do you think about that?
0: The space that they're subleasing has never been occupied. So it's, it's most of it's shell. Yeah. So in theory, they can turn over an allowance that they would receive from the landlord awarded to the next tenant. And that tenant would never really know that this was an Uber space.
1: Okay. Well, then if I took the second example, which is Facebook just pulled out of a 600,000 foot lease, same thing. They never took occupancy. I guess my point is, does the market view it because it's a sublease as different than had it just never been leased to begin with? Or does it come encumbered by, I guess it comes encumbered by Uber or Facebook's original
0: lease, but does it make it less or more attractive? Does it matter? Well, I think it can't matter. I think, ultimately, you're assessing your counterparty. Yeah, And I think that some companies may be more deemed more reliable than other companies. Yeah. I'm making no comment on those two. But just in general, I think that when you're in a sublease situation, when you're the subtenant, you need to be concerned about the sub-landlord's credit as much as they're concerned about your credit. Right. We're typically in an office lease with a landlord and a tenant. There's a little less concerned about that because the tenant can write in some protections that basically address the landlord's credit. So you're saying uh Uber signs with Alt
1: Shuler and Powers Company. We're we're worried if 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 Uber goes out of
0: business, now we're kind of stuck in their right. shit show. That's your concern as a sub tenant that yeah. you don't have as a tenant. Um you know our partnership could go drive really strong terms with a landlord about SNDAs DAs and things that we're gonna ha- we're gonna be able to control if they aren't fiscally Viable, yeah. Let's
1: talk for a second about stranded buildings, sure, because there's a lot of them. I agree. Maybe just the, the basic question is, what you kind of, uh or maybe comment. You basically said there's really no activity happening at those right now, right? If there is
0: activity, what kind is it? Just people looking for a really cheap rate, or so? I'm, I'm thinking three story value office by DFW Airport. Yep, like those. A lot of those buildings are leased. You can drive past them. There's still nobody in the. Nobody's using the parking, so like the tenants that have the spaces leased don't even use them. And when you think about like the rallying cry we hear for office space at the moment is like it's culture building, it's you know how you rally the troops. Like who's really going to convince themselves that this is the building we lease to get everyone excited to come back to work? I think they're in a tough spot. It's like who's looking at them? I would imagine industrial developers are looking at them. I've noticed some trends in Dallas of bigger office parks with older products purchased by apartment developers, knocking them down, delivering some higher end apartments. But I don't know what you do with those buildings at the moment. Can
1: you convert any of them? Or is it, it maybe you can onesie twosie, but at scale there, it's kind of
0: a tough game to play. I think it's a challenge that we'll figure out because one thing that's that's definitely exciting is to see in downtown Dallas and other parts of the, the country, like the big urban areas, how quickly they're adjusting and saying, this is no longer office space, it's 14 floors of of residential. Yep. So I think we'll figure out the, the value office quandary at some point soon, but I think for the most part right now in Dallas, those buildings still are leased, so no one's had to address it. So 2024, 2025, 2026 is kind of when we'll meet our maker? I think so, as
1: soon as debt comes due. Okay, that was gonna be my next question. Do you have any insight Are we just kind of looking the other way and there's a black swan out there just hoping that things change? Or like, how do you think about that mounting debt that's either going to need to be refinanced,
0: redone on all this stuff over the next three years? (laughs) I think it's going to be chaotic. I mean, I think it's going to be tough. I don't know. I feel like in 2008, 2009, the federal government essentially stepped in and told everybody, hey, look, give yourself some time. We're not going to force you to do anything. Give yourself time. And that worked out. I don't know what you do now because i'm not certain time solves it and maybe you have an
1: answer maybe you don't let's say you owned a three you're in the game you owned a three-story building next to dfw that isn't a great culture builder what would you do
0: i don't think i would spend more capital on it yeah i Just, think sometimes you lose yeah that's a great quote sometimes <laughs> <laughs> sometimes
1: you lose we had a guy on the other day that was talking about oil and he's like, we like to look for oil where the oil is. That's right. And sometimes <laughs> you lose. Okay. Office in general, this uh, we can get into the economy in a second, but it's turning around. So it, it really is a story of haves and have nots. So is there still more, uh, you think there's going to be a lot more class A, class AA
0: development going on or do we are we going to go through another d- decade where we're going to see a lot less of that? I mean, I hope we'll see more development. It seems like the new developments, if you look in Dallas, at least, which is where I know the numbers, like you can't point to too many office developments that didn't work out. Yeah. Like they just, the new developments work. Now, if you put them in the wrong location, they can struggle. But otherwise, I mean, Uptown, wow. class AA office has always worked. Yeah. So I think it continues to work. It's just a matter of how do you finance them. Yep. Okay. Let's just talk about the
1: DFW Dallas market just other things are going on in other parts of the country. What are we experiencing in Dallas? I mean, you've ridden this wave now for 20 years, so right. you've gotten to see the meteoric rise. But the last three or four years have just been insane, and the numbers keep coming in, and it seems like every day there's a new corporate relocation coming. So like, how are you feeling about, like if you just looked at your segment of the market, Dallas, how are we doing
0: uh, compared to the rest of the country maybe? There's really nowhere else I'd rather be leasing office space than Dallas. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, I feel lucky that we're here.
1: Are all these corporate relocations because they are corporate? They're all public companies, which have been the ones that are not bringing people back. Right. But then you get announced that, you know, Goldman's going to bring six thousand people here. Are we just assuming that they are going to be in an office when they get here?
0: It feels like financial services has been forcing people back, yeah. like the high level jobs, like get back. Yeah, so. When you're it's t- tech jobs that haven't been able to, the tech companies are the ones who haven't been able to force their people back. You think that's going to shift pretty quick? I mean, like Facebook
1: laid off 12,000 people yesterday, yeah. Twitter let 4,000 people go. I think Elon sent a message this morning to all employees saying there is officially no more remote work. Yeah. Do you think that'll have a cascading effect throughout the tech industry?
0: I don't. Yeah. I think there's certain people that think they can lord over employees and tell them you have to be back in this office. I think most companies feel that their their personnel are, you know, I wouldn't say perilous, but like, I don't think they feel like they control them. Yeah. I think that Elon Musk seems to think he controls lots of things. Yeah. And I think most employers don't feel the same. Yeah. So I I also think like a recession or a downturn has the potential of just reinforcing the work from home aspect of like, hey, if you want to work from home and we don't want the expense, like, we're both winning here. Let's yeah. not take the office. So you're an office guy. I'm just being honest. I know. What, what,
1: what do you want? To, what does what a great future for office look like to you?
0: I think you're in a market like ours where yeah. people want to live okay. and raise kids and have families and you know it's just a really pleasant place to to do all parts of your life. And so we keep getting more businesses here and people want to be in an office part of their work week. And so companies need to have an office to accommodate that. And the offices increasingly get nicer and nicer. That's good for us. Yeah. So I just think that like rank and file office is problematic. Yeah. And high end office is not. So hopefully businesses continue to thrive such that they can afford to pay more rent and we can occupy the kind of buildings it seems like people want to actually be in.
1: You kind of mentioned the clubhouse thing earlier and you've been, we've talk, been talking about class AA office. It makes me think about old Parkland. Uh, and maybe the question is, are you seeing more, um, either developments or maybe it's just a building where you're starting to see cluster formations of tenants that have lots in common that they're forming these almost communities. Cause when I think of old Parkman, I think I know the rent's really high and it's just the most beautiful place ever, but like the power of that tenant mix together is almost indescribable. Are you seeing that anywhere else do you ever see like a building where everybody's kind of starts clustering together or communities of businesses that are want to be
0: next to each other i'd say it started with the crescent i mean the crescent did that in the 80s and 90s really by bringing goldman there yeah they brought goldman there and then that became the financial center of the southwest pretty quick yeah um old parkman's the one who changed that
1: yeah okay what about we work creative office shared office how's that doing
0: is it going to grow is have we peaked so I think that if you think about office space, like if you're the corporate manager of a of a company and you're in charge of the real estate, like your real estate is it's omnichannel. Like you have the corporate office lease, you have co-working, you have work from home and you have conferencing. Like those four components are how you have to think about your real estate portfolio now. So co-working still is it's on that list it's a meaningful part of the list and I feel like that product type is adjusting pretty quickly for what how that needs to accommodate the user yeah but I mean at first I discounted co-working but I don't now at all like it's a significant part of the market and I have lots of friends in co-working like running real companies are they uh, leasing
1: uh, basically leasing f- floor plates and then subleasing that to individuals, or has it become more of this management agreement that's become more popular where they're just, I guess,
0: in it like a triple net lease or like a... Uh... It's like a, I mean, it's interesting how it started off as leases. Yeah. And it evolved to where, hey, I think there was an issue of like how we were gonna share the risk or transfer the risk. Yeah. And so the operators didn't wanna take the risk. They wanted to transfer that more to the owners. And having worked with Heinz leasing the stack, seeing, multiple co-working companies come to them with this management agreement arrangement. the capital didn't seem intrigued with that because they didn't feel like they had cash flows they could project. yeah, that would be under as, be easily to underwrite. yeah. so I think there's still a challenge with the management agreement. I think that what happens is if you have space that you're convinced isn't leasing, but that has a potential to be successful with the co-working. You accept the management agreement.
1: What is the difference between a great
0: leasing agent and a not great leasing agent? I don't think it's much. I think it's <laughs> presentation ability and follow through. Like, and it's hustle. Okay.
1: So, if I'm a young guy and I'm going to come or girl and I'm going to come work for you, what are you telling
0: me to go do? I think you got to start. So, I, I remember how I was taught like, you figure out any part of the market, just figure out a part of the market, a small slice of it and just go figure out who owns all the land, who owns all the buildings, who the tenants are. Like I remember at Crow, I got sent through downtown, all the buildings, stacked them all. After I'd done that, I had to go stack other buildings, and stacking wasn't just going down and writing down who was there. It was like walking in, handing out my business card, asking to speak to the decision maker, can we talk about your lease, that kind of thing. Um, I remember my career, I think i turned thrown out of nine buildings that first year. I got a nasty letter from a competitor that was sent to I think Lee Belland turned me into an office hero for a week that I (laughs) don't see that letter. But yeah, it's just hustle. You you go figure out who the tenants are, where they are. You try to engage with them, figure out the competitive set, and just track the market, get in front of deals. And like when you're aware of a deal, you just got to keep following up, following up, following up, get the tour, give a great tour, and then more and more follow up. I always tell our group, we want the ball out of our court. like We want to get the ball into our court and hit it back. Yeah. Get it back to our court, hit it back. Like you want to keep things moving, but like that tends to happen because you're hustling. And I remember being teaching me that it's our job to convince people to do things that left alone they otherwise would not do. Yeah, like when you're a leasing agent, and that's what you're doing. How how quickly do you want to get in front of these people? Two years out of their lease? Does it depend on their size? It depends on the size. Yeah. I mean, so much of life, so much of our business is timing. It's like right place, right time. But like, if you are showing up more frequently, yeah, there is a better chance of being the right place, right time. Okay, so
1: now we'll kind of weave in that we're moving sideways right now. Yeah, so we're practicing a lot, right? Not getting paid, but we're practicing. I actually saw Jack Nicholas speak last night, the golfer. Yeah. Somebody in the crowd asked him, "What do you fear the most? You won eighteen majors. You are the greatest golfer of all time. What do you fear?" And he said, uh, my biggest fear in life is that I didn't practice hard enough before any event or whatever I knew had coming. I, if I know the U.S. Opens in three weeks. I know how hard I need to practice. So his fear was that he never practiced enough. So for everybody listening to this, it's practicing a lot and getting paid. Now's your chance to to practice hard because the, the game's coming. Yeah. What are you telling people right now or what would be a pitch to a great, a tenant that you would dream of doing a deal with, what should they be thinking about right now? Let's say they got two years left on their lease. Right. They're office tenants, it's a class A building. It's it's not a debate of if they're gonna work in an office or not, but it's more of a,
0: hey, the world's moving where it's moving. What are you telling people? I think you're asking a lot of questions. Yeah. If you're talking to that tenant, Yeah. Um, you're trying to figure out, because a lot of times you end up talking to somebody who has an agenda about office space and wants it to be a certain way? I think trying to help them understand, help the tenant understand, like how is the employee base truly interacting with the space? Um, what are they liking about it? What could be better? I think that two years from now, I'm not certain. Like if you're an uptown tenant, that things are going to be dramatically different from an availability standpoint in terms of like, hey, you have a lot more options. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I think if you're uh, a Freeport tenant. Two years from now, things are better for you than they are today. Um, Two years from now in Uptown, I don't think you can necessarily say that's definitely the case. Yeah. The the market is not moving in lockstep. There's parts of it that are falling apart and there's parts of it that continue to accelerate. So I think you have to be savvy as the tenant to know which of those buckets you're in. Are a lot of these tenants that are in Uptown, are these always
1: tenants that would have been there anyway or a lot of these tenants, folks that might not have considered it based on cost that are now going, we got to fork up the dough to get our people
0: back. So the tenants that are already there, th- they've always been paying top dollar. Yeah. Now top dollar's doubled, yeah. but they were always the high rent payer in the market. Right. Um, tenants that are moving into that market, I think are doing so because they know they can attract people back to work there.
1: Yeah. And so they're just budgeting more and just yeah. saying,
0: this is what it's going to take.
1: Right. Are there any new building amenities or things in common areas that are that you have popped up maybe because of COVID or maybe because of the times we're in that are making buildings more competitive or things that are obsolete now that you'd say don't ever build
0: build that in your building again? I think that like the touchless arrival, yeah, is neat and I think that's in, enduring. I think yeah. people continue to want that. I think open air is something that people What's want. that? Just like the ability to open that window. Okay. I think people value that much more so than they used to. I think a balcony space used to be cute. And I think now it's like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. We want that even in Texas where it's hot. Yeah. So those are ideas, examples of things that have changed in terms of how people really view them. Man, for me, I just want a cool place to have coffee. I want to have a great seating environment. Um, that's just important to me. I like to be able to break up my day and continue working. In proximity to my office, right, but not necessarily in my office. Yeah, um, I want to have really good dining alternatives, like a range from white tablecloth to a great sandwich and salad place. So, I think increasingly that the, having a range of awesome things is important. It's not just having a deli. Yeah, the
1: deli is kind of yeah. It's not going to work, right? Are there any other markets besides uptown that are really interesting? Like downtown, there's. Downtown seems to always have been this market the last 10 or 15 years that it's like, it's going to be great. We're, we're almost there. Are we there? Is it getting better? Like what other markets excite you? I think we
0: were there before COVID and COVID set it back because they meant amen- these shut down. Okay. I feel like Deep Elm's awesome. I feel like the design district's fantastic. Those are cool, edgy areas that if you look around the country, around the world, and areas like that, they've been developing office buildings for years. We've been behind that trend, that international trend here in the Metroplex. So I think that will continue. I think Legacy's done a great job of creating a cool built environment that people get energy from. Yeah. So they've done a good job. And so there's other places we can do the same thing. I just think the development needs to be continued to be real thoughtful about how you create mixed use urban environments that people truly want to be in. Yeah.
1: I'm gonna try and ask this the right way because I've always just been fascinated. When there's like a big mega tenant, I don't know, 500,000 feet, that seems pretty big. Maybe. How much different is that than working with like a 5,000 square foot tenant? Like what are all the extra things that are happening when it's such a big space, meaning you know, thousands of employees? Like what are, from your world, how does your job change the larger the tenant gets? Maybe
0: that's the question. So we did a 390,000 square foot lease for Santander Consumer USA in, you know, seven years ago, so a really big monster lease. And it just, it's interesting, that's, that firm was still heavily executive focused in terms of like how decision making was, was occurring. I'm working on a hundred thousand foot lease right now where it's clearly more of a committee And that committee is rather sophisticated and each of the committee members has different expertises they bring to the discussions that we have about this lease and the deal. Yeah. So the 5,000-foot lease, you tend to deal with one or two people. Yeah. The bigger leases, you tend to deal with with many people and they're all really sophisticated in their expertise. And that takes a couple of years to get a lease like that done? It can. It also can happen pretty quickly. Really? Yeah. Like how quickly? We started the lease for Santander in June and had it signed in October. So that was four months. When did they start touring it? We probably, you know, i worked with them actually though, for, we were working with them for a year and a half before just with their existing landlord, the time wasn't right. Yeah. They wanted to time up their expiration to the new deal, but it didn't take long once we entered the market to get the deal done. This
1: has to be hitting office harder than industrial, which I know better. CapEx has obviously gotten more expensive finish outs and like through the roof tenant requirements, just in general, right. they want, they have higher tastes. I joke in, in the type of industrial buildings I buy, it's paint carpet and the buildings that you're leasing, the CEO wants a platinum toilet to sit on. Right. It's two different worlds. Right. But it's also the construction timelines, like what used to take six months takes a year and maybe even at a year, like th- we're still waiting on a few things to arrive. How's that in the market? Like our tenants going, we don't want to take the risk of leasing, like leaving the building and going somewhere because we don't know if that building is going to be ready. And, and is anybody being put in this pinch where it's like, damn, our lease is up, but our new space isn't ready. Yes.
0: How's that being thought about? Well, I think COVID taught us how to think about it. Nobody. A lot of times, like we have to go work from home. We don't care. We, yeah. we can do that. Where before COVID, the scenario you described would have been corporate or corporate Armageddon, like no one could envision, like, what would we do if we don't have an office? Well, no, we all know what we do without an office. Like, we yeah. go work from home or the coffee shop, and we call each other in Zoom. So we're dealing with this with several tenants right now where one large tenant's been out of their office for eight months because we found a sub we found a sub-lease for their existing premises, they went ahead and took that, and then they were waiting for their space to be constructed. So they've been operating fine. Yeah. Conversely, we have a medical practice we're representing, yeah. where we're selling their current facility and moving into a leased facility that's shell. So, like, we're building a lot of flexibility on the sale with our lease back, where we can lease it for six months, nine months, twelve months, because the contractor's saying they can finish it in six months, but we can't work from home if we're doctors. I guess it's it it's a
1: little different in industrial because you can't tell the warehouse workers. Hey, everybody go grab some stuff off the shelves and take it home with you. Like yeah, it's a good point. You're like a medical practice. The func- need to have- it's a function of your business. Right. Like you have to have it. Right. There office is, no. is less essential. Yeah. Yeah. Do you are you seeing like capital flow? Like, are are you seeing more office investors get into other stuff? Are the same office investors that have always been there just kind of again, um, focusing more on core and class A stuff? Are people fleeing? Like, how's the capital situation looking right now? I know. There's the stranded
0: stuff that's just like a hope note, but yeah, I just feel like we're in that moment where nobody knows the price. Yeah, nobody knows the exit cap rate, not that we ever know it, but like we feel like we really don't know it now. So, I think pricing discovery takes a while in office. There's not not a lot of trades that I'm seeing.
1: What is the city of Dallas? I mean, the city of Dallas has done a remarkable job of building this ecosystem all the way up to uh, Los Colinas and now up into Frisco is the narrative kind of at the city of Dallas. Still, we want more business,
0: bring it on. Like it's all guns blazing. I think so. And there's some shortcomings like right now with permits where you can tell they're trying to figure out how to solve that by hiring a bunch of people. That's a great environment. And I'm sure for, I know Fort Worth's the same, but like Dallas just, this can do. And you feel as a normal person that you can influence the city and its operation without being an elected official. Yeah. It's it's just a place where you feel like you can have some meaningful influence just by getting some of the right people on board and, and doing something. Does Dallas still have, or the, the broker network in Dallas still
1: have those monthly big lease meetings? There's lots of them. Yeah. yeah. And it's they all a, share deals very, in the market. very
0: open sharing market. Yeah. Still inefficient like any other real estate market, but I feel like our market shares information pretty readily. Yeah. If
1: we go through a uh, a downturn, which which could be expected um, from someone who's been in it a while, what would you tell folks that maybe just got started or haven't kind of built that book of business? Because um, you either have people get it, you, this is a time where you see people leave uh, that are only making what they kill, and there's not a lot to kill right now. Like, what what's the plan right now for folks that
0: don't have that book of business? I think you just work hard. I think you just don't get lazy. Yeah. Don't reduce your hours. Like you just put in the time. I mean, you got to put the time in at some point. Yeah. Good market, bad market. Just put the time in. Make the calls, learn the markets. I think so long as you have expertise, that's valuable. And reality is when you're leasing office space, leases expire. So people have to do something. They're going to keep their office space. So there's always opportunity. Yeah. And things change fast. I mean, as bad as it might feel at some point. I've never seen it seem bad, stay bad forever, or, or for a long period, really at all. Yeah. Bounces it bounces back. It seems to me like markets move so quickly now. Yeah. Up, down, like back. It's just, I think there'll be opportunities. Lots of them. Um, I would be remiss not to talk about, I think
1: y'all are one of the best marketing. Y'all do have some of the best marketing in the real estate industry. Thank you. When you go to their website and you and you click on what we do, I think I have this line written, we chew
0: glass and breathe fire. Who developed your marketing? Is that you? Well, it's Slant Partners. It's a marketing firm. I feel like I sort of co-founded. My co-founder would tell me I didn't. Yeah. So I, I didn't. <laughs> but we all office together. Yeah. And we have this a really good spirit about our, our office. And I feel like it's been real helpful to, to me in my career to be aligned with Rebecca Cole, who is a Baylor grad and went to business school at University of Chicago and founded Slant and to have been able to work with her for so long because it's her and her colleagues that do all that stuff.
1: Your signage is great. Thank I mean, you. I, it's all great. I appreciate it. They do it. I mean, like you're selling a piece of land, and it—I think it says like "Let dirt fly." Make dirt, make dirt fly. It's awesome. Thank you. I think you're leading the pack there, and I don't really have a question. I just wanted to tell you on this podcast that I love marketing, and it's some of the best I've ever seen. Well, I really appreciate it. It, it goes a long way. Um. All right. Let's just kind of. Uh, we've kind of covered a lot of office and we don't have to go into other asset classes, but if we we have a forward looking thought, um, how are you preparing your team for the next two years, three years?
0: I think, and and we're just trying to build more relationships with, with clients that will want to do more things. I mean, I think you're trying to grow your team. You're trying to grow your client count. Yeah. It's that simple. It's not a hard business. So when things slow, I, I just want us spending more time with prospects, with our current clients, um, with market participants, just trying to get information and trying to get ideas. So I think it's that's our, our formula. And I kind of kept keep touching on this because
1: I will say, um, and I mean this in the most positive way possible, is uh, your reputation and everything I've always known for you is that you have outworked everybody. Well, thank you. And that, that's kind of been your thing. Well, thank you. And did that come as a kid? Did that come from your parents? Like where did that develop? Because it, it is a very known thing about you that you will outwork anybody that you're in the
0: room with. It's funny. I remember McBean telling me that if you tell enough people you're bulletproof and invisible, <laughs> some people will believe you're bulletproof and invisible. <laughs> and I think maybe I just told people I work really hard. I, I don't know how I got that um, reputation. I appreciate it. I think that I've been demanding at times, like just like, hey, here's some standards we want to adhere to. Let's adhere to the standards. They're not that hard. Let's just do it. And i think not everybody is used to that kind of messaging like you know high expectations and so i do think that i'm demanding and i know i got that from my parents so but in terms of willingness to work hard i feel like it's just the way i was raised and just what i've always seen work and it's honestly the example i've seen from everyone else who's way ahead of me is like they're working hard the secret is
1: is work hard yeah and i think i don't know it's not the world we live in doesn't preach that as much but i feel like we used to celebrate hard work maybe more as a culture than we do today Probably, um and maybe that will if there's some bright sides of a recession or a slowdown is it inherently makes people work harder sam zell was talking at a conference the other day i was sitting at and he said um you know when money's really cheap it doesn't cost you anything your team to punt a project another month there's really not a lot of cost to it mm-hmm. But when money's not cheap, every day that that project doesn't start, it's costing you something. Yeah. And so one of the things he said was going to have the biggest impact at the same time that interest rates were going up, he believed that America's work ethic is going to get kicked back into overdrive because there is no time anymore
0: to like punt projects per se another month. And I thought that was interesting. It's also like to me, like I, I've watched Golden State play basketball games several times. And like, you get there early and you watch Steph Curry warming up and it's not your typical warm up. Like he's out there hours early, just grinding through this workout, always with the same coach, like doing the same drills, but like, it's awesome to watch, just like to see someone who's the very best, the very best, how hard he's working.
1: Okay. This is totally off topic. I was doing a little bit of research. um, And I know that you've written some things uh, for D Magazine. But you wrote one that stood out to me. Uh, and in the world we're living in today, I just thought it was interesting. So I was going to talk about it. You said that it's really important to become a global citizen in today's world. I've never thought about that. So this is why I wanted to talk about it. I've always, not that I think it's too bad to be one, I've just never thought that that's something I should strive for. So I'm going to ask you, and for others listening, why? did you decide
0: to write about that? And why is being a global citizen important? I'm not certain why I decided to write about it. I just know that like when I was writing for that publication, I only wanted to write about things that I was moved to write about. Okay. I didn't want to just like turn in a piece and I wanted to just do good writing and I wanted to write about things that mattered to me. And to me, like when I think about being a global citizen, I. and that this is particularly important I think for Texans okay cuz I am this is my mindset maybe yours whenever someone asks me where I'm from I'm from Texas yeah or I'm, I all the time, I'm from Dallas yeah and this is like when I'm in Los Angeles New York <laughs> Atlanta when I'm overseas I'm identifying as a Texan before I'm identifying as an American yeah so we especially I think it's important to think about global citizen, citizenry so a global citizen In my mind is conscientious that there is a globe of people that we are all contributing to and interacting with. And I just feel like you can get great ideas, you can make great relationships, you can learn things, you can bring those things back to your local community just by being out and about and by having that mindset of being a global citizen. And I learned it from a guy from Pakistan who had gone to Penn and I was on the ski slopes with him in Luck, Austria, of all places. And I asked him, hey, do you like Penn? He said, I loved it. It put me on the path to being a global citizen. Mm-hmm. And so I said, explain to me what that means to you. And it's this interesting, like a guy from Pakistan, like his idea and his pride of participating globally, I just thought it was a neat way to approach life. And I thought it seems unique, too, for a Texan. So I want to be that way. Are there things that have
1: changed about your life? by thinking about the world that way? Like, do you travel more? Do you, well, how you taught your kids? Like what, what has changed
0: maybe since that conversation? Sure. So I, I was traveling before, but it reinforced that I was reading international publications before, but it reinforced that. And so like when I'm reading the Economist, when I'm reading the financial times, I just realized I get so many good ideas from those publications, whether it's ideas like an like the economist is more like talking about the economy and our political systems and. They're giving me ideas about a lot of things I can't influence maybe, but like financial times when they're talking about different regions and places to go and things to see and ideas, I just learned so much from reading those things that I then can actually go see for myself and dive into I just, Yeah. I think he really changed our approach to travel and, you know, we're talking about our kids before the podcast. We were going to Paris when my youngest was a, a year. My oldest was 10 and we've been going on an international trip at least once a year with that whole tribe. And I know it's influential. I can just tell from my kids, like the things they talk about, like my daughter being willing to go to Boston for college, my wife kind of getting the realization that, you know, she's the mother, these kids are going far away. But when you travel, you kind of realize how, how close everything really is. Yeah. So do you, um, Do
1: you think we're becoming a more united globe right now? Or are we fracturing again?
0: I think we're always fracturing. I think we're always close. I think we always. I don't know. I think if you study history and look back, I can only imagine what it was like to live here in the sixties. I mean, people like leaders being slain from, you know, JFK to Martin Luther King to Malcolm X to RFK, like people just getting killed on TV plus all the unrest, plus the wars, I think it's always choppy, honestly. But I think when you're in the moment, you always feel like, oh, boy, this is as bad as it's ever been. I don't, I don't think it's that bad. I don't, I don't think we're that divided. I think we can get back, I think we agree on lots of things, it's just extreme things that we don't agree with. So <laughs> Do you watch that show? No. <laughs> I will love it. Succession. What was that, Succession? <laughs> It's the theme show uh, song for Succession. See, that is the best thing about a
1: podcast. That makes, this (laughs) makes the podcast even more raw and authentic. Sorry about that. No, it's great. Like taking back to Texas and taking back to Dallas. And I am not, I haven't been out of the country in forever, but how is, from your experiences, the rest of the world think about Texas? And I know Dallas is becoming a global epicenter. Yeah. Um, So how do you, tying that conversation back to being a Texan and being in Dallas, one how does how do they view us from your opinion?
0: It's funny. I was at, a, at a, a meeting Sunday night at Thanksgiving Square, and there was a woman there who works for the marketing department of the city of Dallas, and like this is actually her job is to help with messaging. And she was telling me they were working to you know working on the image of the city and this and that. And I was like, well, what's wrong with the image of the city? Like, what, what do you mean? And she was talking to people, thinking that we ride horses and things like that, which I don't think people really think. That, we do that in Fort Worth. I, that's, I that's know Fort y'all do. Worth yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> think people really believe that, but I think the reality is Dallas is the country's largest international open progressive city. Where, if you show up within two years, if you have good ideas and work hard, you'll be welcomed and have a chance to influence things at a, at a very high level. Yeah, and I can point to multiple people where that's proven to be the case. Yeah. And I think that's unlike other parts. And, and Fort Worth maybe the same way. Like that's unlike, I think, other parts of the country yeah. that are more closed, where it's more important like who families are and organizations you want. Here it's like, are you willing to work hard? Do you have good ideas? Yeah. We need both of those. All right. I'd be remiss uh to not bring this up then
1: because we did just mention Fort Worth. I love everybody that's listening from Fort Worth, I love Fort Worth, but I've got to I've got to be a little honest. Dallas has stolen the show when it comes to corporate relocations, when it comes to building big business. Fort Worth's doing well and, and the Alliance is doing well, but we haven't landed those corporate relocations. Do you think about Fort Worth at all? Can Do you have any advice for Fort Worth on what we could do better to attract more business or is it not something that kind of crosses your radar?
0: So when I think about Fort Worth, I'm on the Fort Worth Education Partnership. Okay. Brent Beasley runs that. And so i'm a board member okay and so when i'm thinking about fort worth i'm thinking a lot about k through 12 education yeah i'm not thinking so much about business okay i don't i think of y'all as being like connected to dallas um i feel like we're kind of one the same i feel like y'all have a different vibe um different etiquette like in a good way yeah and i think it's a really nice way of life here So I I think very highly of Fort Worth. I'm not certain why why you haven't picked up the relocations. Yeah, the reality is like we talk about a lot over there, and there's like there's a handful, and there's some really glitzy ones. We get really big headline relocations. Yeah, I'd be interested to see like who's relocating here, at the sub. You know, maybe it's not making the big Texas press announcements, but like I would imagine there's still relocations occurring to here, and there's business growth occurring here. Yeah. Um. I wonder if your city feels quite as inclusive from a, hey, I can show up and be an outsider and definitely make it work. Yeah. It feels here to me as an outsider, like the city's controlled by several prominent names in a very gracious way. Yeah. Which is a little different than Dallas, I think. Yeah. We have big families, but I don't think they're quite as influential with how the city works, at least from a perception standpoint. Yeah.
1: No, I think that perception's very uh, spot on um and like you said i I think fort worth has an amazing culture great people uh i'm one of the fort worthians that feels lucky to be next to dallas i know we have our t-shirts that say don't dallas my fort worth or something (laughs) but i am one of the ones that love i'm so grateful i told you tonight i'm leaving here and i'm going over the i call it the big city that's right Um, i'm excited about it i think y'all have like I don't know 30 something cranes i mean you're driving into off of 30 into dallas it's just like crazy crane city it really is i think we have two up in fort worth right now really yeah wow one of them's a nonprofit, profit prior like a hospital project i think one's a for-profit project that's all i didn't
0: realize that yeah we have tons of development yeah and the numbers
1: get a little skewed because alliance texas is technically annexed into fort worth so when you look at our data on paper it looks really good but I've never seen data that strips Alliance out of our numbers. Okay. Just say, Just give me like core Fort Worth. Right. I would love to see that data. If anybody's listening to this that could show me that, please email me. I'd love to see it. Uh, all right, John, this has been awesome. Um, I'm really glad I got to know you better today and I appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.